0: have been hit hard by a severe drought this year. If we are going to grow a lot more food, where will the water come from?
1: Intensification of agriculture is one response to the food crisis. The regulatory environment is kind of the key. We need to increase productivity sustainably. How do we move into the future?
0: Hello, my name is Franziska Gaub and I'm the host of the Food Systems podcast. In my podcast, I talk to actors in the global food system about how they got to where they are today how their work looks like, and what they wish for the future of food. In this episode, I talk to Dr. Cynthia Rosenzweig, an agronomist and climatologist at the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies and Columbia University. Cynthia tells us about the beginning of climate impact modeling and why these models are so important. We hear why there are good reasons for optimism in the climate change debate and why 2018 could have been an important tipping point in this discussion. We talk about women in science and exciting new projects in the field of climate impact modeling. Welcome to my Food Systems podcast, Cynthia. Thank you, Francisca. Uh, we're here in Washington, D.C. at the American Geophysical Union's annual fall meeting. Around 24,000 scientists are coming together to talk about ongoing research in the field of hydrology, atmospheric sciences, ocean sciences, global environmental change and more. Thank you so much for joining me here and telling me a bit about your career and your work, Cynthia. Uh, You're an agronomist and climatologist. And here at AGU, you talked about your work on climate change and the food system, about production, but also the supply chain and demand. Why is it important to look at the entire supply chain and not just at the production when it comes to the impact of climate change?
1: For many years, we just focused on climate change and production. Probably still... 95% of the research is done on the production side. Of Mm -hmm. course, it's very important how the changing climate will affect the crops growing in the fields and also the livestock. But what's happening now in this field is that we are expanding broadly the remit of the field to include the entire food system. So we just added on two major new areas. And I think we have to step up to the challenges of addressing and linking how climate change will affect the storage, the processing, the everything, the transport, uh, the trade aspects, all of those issues that we put into the broad basket of supply chains, and then, of course, the actual consumption of the agricultural products, food, because in the end of the day, it is a food delivery system, and we have to take the whole group, all three components into account. What my talk yesterday was emphasizing is that we have to create new science and linkage of science to actually then, how do we bring, for example, AgMIP, the Agricultural Model Intercomparison. What and, we're going to talk later, but yes, more in detail. But yes, well, let's talk more about that later, mm-hmm. but just how can we improve the rigor and the linkages across these three components of the food system, not, but of course we still have to keep going on production and improving our understanding of how climate change will affect the production as well.
0: Yeah, great. Um, you're a professor. You are a co chair of New York City's Panel on Climate Change and you advise local policymakers. You were recognized when the Nobel Peace Prize was awarded in 2007 jointly to Al Gore and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, because you had provided important contributions as lead author. In 2012, you were named as one of the 10 people who mattered in 2012 by the science journal Nature. This is incredibly impressive. However, I would like to start at the very beginning of your career. And I want to learn about your path and how you ended up where you are today. You were born in the 1950s in a suburb of New York City, right? And I think you said you didn't like the suburbs, at all.
1: That's right. Actually, um, I was born, I think actually Wikipedia has my wrong birth date. Oh, so, but you have to correct it. I don't want to. <laughs> I was born in 1948. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I lived it as you're absolutely correct. I grew up in the suburbs um, all the way through high school. And I basically swore to myself as I, I was um, leaving home that I only wanted to live either in the country or the city. Uh, and no, no more suburbs. Um, and that led me to actually move to uh, the country, but a very special country in Tuscany, in Italy and to have a farm there when I was very young. I think that was after you finished your bachelor's degree, is that no, right? it was it before. Wasn't, it was before. Oh wow. And so my real roots as an agronomist go to one of really the heartlands of, of agriculture in the whole world, which so is- So how old
0: were you when you moved to Italy? Um, maybe 20. Wow. I, <laughs> I guess that was quite an adventure at that time. It was
1: very much an adventure. And I, I, mo- I went there with my- um, my soon-to-be husband—we uh, <laughs> actually got married there oh, wow. in Florence. Um, but we wanted to. He had done an anthropology project with uh, contadini; they're called um, the the country people in um, in Tuscany. He had done a project with them and gotten to know a family that made their own Chianti wine, that made their crushed their own olive oil, and he told me about all of this. And I said, "We must go." And so, what we were doing there when we were twenty. Years years old was learning about how to do all those things and that is what is my real roots of why I became an agronomist At later on when I came back and then I finished then I started again all my education in agronomy.
0: Wow so would you say that it's important in your opinion to have a practical understanding or experience in farming before someone goes into crop modeling? I definitely do And we were discussing this at the AgMIP Town Hall here at the AGU.
1: And I think that it's just such a uh, fun—agriculture and production of food is such a fundamental human activity that you— I really encourage everyone, uh, you know, young, young, middle and old to spend time on farms the way that I was able to do when I was young. Because then, you know, you then whenever you look at some data, right, you have like, oh, well, you know, you have like what the real thing is and what, how complex the, the actual system is.
0: So then you went back to the U.S. and you did go to university and you learned a little bit about the maybe more the theoretical work connected to farming and agriculture. Uh, you did a bachelor's degree then and a master's in soil and crops from Rutgers University. And during your master's, you were hired by the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies, GIS to study cropland using satellite data. And I think you said Sam Go- Goward. is yes. that correct? Yeah, yes. he, from NASA, um, who became your mentor later. He came to your department and was looking for a grad student who could work for him. How, how exactly did this happen? Well,
1: um, at that time, NASA was having some programs with their new, relatively new satellite program, specifically on using remote sensing images to learn about crops and crop production. And um, they hoped that then they would, um, you know, and and to be able to predict yield, Uh, which, by the way, there are still very major programs that NASA is still doing this and some wonderful new programs. But at that time, NASA hadn't done too much in agriculture. So uh, we're we're, we're, Goddard Institute for S- Space Studies is a small institute up in New York City on, in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And so Sam and another colleague came down to Rutgers because it was the closest land grant university. In the United States, every state has one university that is designated as the, as the official agricultural university. And they're, they're all hooked up together and they get federal funding for doing research on agriculture. So the NASA colleagues came down and said we need help. <laughs> so you were just lucky and that I your university said, yes, was closed. Yes exactly I was so lucky that it was just perfect for me and that's how I got to NASA and I've actually then been at that Institute ever since.
0: Yeah, wow. Um, You started to work on CO2 effects at NASA. You did research on the impacts of a doubling of CO2 on the quality and shift of production regions of wheat. I imagine back then, agricultural models looked very different to how they look today. Can you explain a little bit about the models back then? Yes, well, for that
1: very first project, that was my first peer-reviewed journal article. And I created an expert system for what are the growing degree days for wheat and for the different types of wheat, spring wheat and winter wheat, which have um, different, uh, for example, vernalization requirements. And then I was f- from that expert. The, I developed the expert system, and then used the. It was really new projections coming from the global climate models, some of the very first ones, mm-hmm. to see well how does how do the models and of, of the current climate, the GCM, how do how well do they do to replicate the wheat regions of today, um, with that climate and with with the expert system I developed, and then did then it was I think one of the very early projections of how the zonation of crops would move so that was uh, that was great but uh, you know it was like very exciting and I you know I was very happy to very excited to do it but I wrote a memo to Jim Hansen who is James Hansen who is a very well-known climate scientist Mm -hmm. who is actually from Iowa And I said to him in this memo, I said, in order to really understand how climate change will affect the future of of food production, we need to use dynamic process crop growth models, Mm -hmm. um, which will then, because one of the main things we have to do is we need a model that can have the CO2 effects on photosynthesis and evapotranspiration and growth as well as then the climate change effects on phenological stages and high temperature effects etc so we needed to have that time these uh, and the and so i i I went to the modelers who were just developing those models, uh Joe Ritchie, for example, and then in Europe, the models that were coming out of Wageningen, of course, mm-hmm. and then I said, "This is the tool that we really need to use so that's how it all got started. <laughs>
0: And in the beginning, so they were purely biophysical models. But later you said you also combined the biophysical with climate and socioeconomic models. So this is where the impact modeling started. Was that already during your PhD? Or um, Yes. So here's the thing. So I got my master's from Rutgers.
1: And I got the job at Goddard, at GISS. We call it GISS. Mm-hmm. And then and I started doing all this research. And then I started going to conferences, kind of like the AGU, or different, you know, conferences. And then I would, I would do posters, as you know, young (laughs) scientists do. And then people would then people would start to ask me to uh, present on it. So I did presentations. And then they would say, "And here's Dr. Rosenzweig to give this talk." But I wasn't a PhD yet. So then I said, "Oh my gosh, I really have to have—we have to have, we have, to have
0: a truth in advertising." So you first so, did the research, and then you realized, exactly. oh, maybe I should get the title yes, exactly, to, for this exactly, research." Exactly, <laughs>
1: exactly, exactly. And so then I—I um, I had a wonderful experience getting my PhD at the University of Massachusetts. I commuted at that time. Uh, because I commuted there. I kept my job at GIS. I then, by then, also had two small children. Oh, wow. And and a very wonderful husband who then were very understanding about me going to get my PhD. And
0: so that's how I did it. (laughs) So how was it to have two little kids and at the same time building a scientific career? I'm...
1: It's tough, but absolutely for those women who do want to have family, we have to make it work. And mm-hmm. What helped you to make it work? One of the things, yeah, I've thought about this a lot. Um, and now it's now that I, you know, have our research group at, um, at GISS and young women who are just having they, their children now. And in fact, one of my research assistants is, is uh, her due date is actually, right, I think, in two days. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, okay. And help, you know, just trying to create an environment that they can really if they so desire, continue with their careers, their research careers, as well as having children. So we're, we're working on that right now in our group as well. But a few things I would say. One thing is I was very lucky because I, I was living relatively close to the Institute, Sometimes people ha- have to commute quite far to get to their jobs. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes it harder for the moms or, and the parents, both parents. It's not just the moms. But I, w- because I was in Manhattan and I was always just a very fast taxi, if anything happened like at my kid's school and I got, I got it, I could just get there. So I didn't feel far away from them.
0: Okay, did you also sometimes come come home then for for lunch and saw them um uh not
1: so much for lunch um but we we certainly were able to because and that time and I think still most kids eat their lunch at school but um but we certainly then were able to go to every single school play and school dance and uh see the art projects and and sometimes uh, occasionally go on school trips, so I think that just That's one thing. The other thing I would say is, in general, there's this wonderful spirit, I think, in a family, if it can work, in which everybody is off doing their, their kids are at school, the mom and dad are at, uh, you know, are doing their things, and then you all come back together and share your day, and it's actually, I think, very positive.
0: Yeah, and everyone can share their story, what happened to them during the day.
1: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. amazing. Yeah, but I also did, um, we also, just one more thing, um, which is we were very fortunate because we were able to have help. We had mm-hmm. um, a nanny and I, I, we, ha- we were able to have the nanny for a long time, even when uh, they were able to go to school and come back by, on their own. But just to have somebody in the home, and so we were very fortunate. So I think that's also that kind of stability for the kids so that the kids weren't sort of quote on their own yeah. that we were that someone was was always waiting at home
0: so we were very fortunate. So when you then brought the different um, components like the biophysical, climate and socioeconomic models together and started with the impact model, uh, you also used, I think, different crop models and started to compare them. And you once said if you only use one model, you start to believe it and that's not scientific. And you also said models are tools for understanding to think through ideas. Can you explain what you mean by that?
1: Yeah, sure. But first, I want to go back to the socioeconomics first. Yeah. So, um, so I'm an agronomist. I work on in the biophysical side of things and clim- physical and biophysical and effects on the crops and those processes. But what from from the very beginning I realized that if we really are going to understand how climate change is going to affect uh, food production, we have to bring in the socioeconomic side because. Agriculture is not only a physical system and a biophysical system, but it is a socio-economic system. It is people's livelihoods. Yeah. And so, very early on, I realized that that we had to bring in the economics as well. So, from and the be- was it
0: difficult to convince people that you have to include socio-economic variables as well, especially to biologists and very. F- Biophysical models. Well, it was certainly a learning experience <laughs> on both sides, <laughs> because
1: some of the really it was learning sharing how differently the 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 two groups actually think about things.
0: And I think we still have this issue today, right? We try to combine qualitative and quantitative research, and it's still a challenge oh, today. It is
1: very much so, and but that carries all the way through up to AgMIP that from the beginning of AgMIP we included at the very first meeting the economists were there and that it was agricultural models both biophysical and socioeconomic. And that's ac- absolutely been essential you abs- because you can't understand it. And so in a way, agriculture, as usual, is leading the way <laughs> because, you know, it's such, a, as I said, it's such a fundamental, it is, in some ways, it is the fundamental sector of human activity. Yeah. and um, and so even we, we just absolutely had to uh, be at the forefront of integrating across disciplines to really
0: answer the climate change uh, challenges before we continue with AgMib, I want to stay in that in that time, around 1980, there was a hearing in the US Senate on the implications of climate change on agriculture. So I was surprised to read that because that means that back then it was already known that climate change had an impact uh, and an effect on our food system. So I was born in 1988. So this basically means that my entire life, this knowledge has been there and nothing happened. And today we're still using slightly improved, of course, impact models to show that climate change can have an impact on the food system. And we still try to convince policymakers to act on it and to take action. So how do you feel about this lack of action over all these years?
1: Well, um, first, let me say, I want to make a point about that hearing. Mm -hmm. 1988, the year 1988 is very famous in, um, in the United States because that was the year at a different Senate hearing that jim hansen said climate change is real mm-hmm. that's where that quote comes from but what i think is also very important is that and i believe senator al gore organized that al gore when he was a senator mm-hmm. organized that that
0: ah that that hearing that okay. The okay. hearing
1: that i presented at okay and and others mm-hmm. and what i think is so important is that impacts were there from the beginning there's so much emphasis on the climate science of course very important mm-hmm. but the impacts were realized that's why we care that's yeah. why we have to care about climate change and so that the impacts were there from the beginning so i just want to say that what one of the th- one of the projects that i'm working on now is creating a climate impacts archive in which we are really creating a timeline of what were the key dates as we understood more and more about impacts. So anybody who has any material for the archive or um, or you know would like to work on this, there could be many like history of science, there could be history of science uh, research projects oh, on this. So if you so have any exciting, yes, young yeah. colleagues who would like I'll to do something. Know. Maybe someone who listens yes, to this exactly, podcast will come could up to come. you I would, love it. I would love it. It's all organized um, by year and by topic. And uh, it's all sitting in four storage units in New York City.
0: Oh, wow. That sounds like a really, really cool yeah, project. Maybe uh, right. a master's or PhD right. project.
1: Anyway, let me just now, now to answer your question. There has been response. It, it's not, I would say, as as dire. The picture is not as dire as, as you um, project. I've seen, because I have been fortunate to be part of, of, of the research on climate change impacts, n- almost from nearly from the beginning or from the beginning, I see tremendous acceptance of the and understanding of the issue through virtually every group in society. I because I'd work on impacts. I speak one time within twenty four hours. I spoke to a thousand New York lawyers. I spoke to four hundred uh, members of the Central Park Conservancy in New York City, and then the next morning, that was on one day, and then morning, evening, and then the next morning, I spoke uh, to an environmental justice conference with four hundred. Uh, people who work in uh, equ- equity and environmental justice. In which year was that? Let's see. That was probably ten or so years ago. Okay. But that was yeah, it was ten mm-hmm. years ago. You yeah, see, so yeah. even at that time, those groups were being challenged by climate change. They said, "What are we going to do? What are we going to do in our group? What can we do on the legal side? What can what can we do through our our, our protected areas? How can we be active in the environmental justice?" So I'm very, I think, fortunate because. I see so many groups in society actually taking on the challenges. So I actually have perhaps
0: a a more
1: optimistic view than you. Oh, well, that sounds so good. I'm
0: <laughs> so glad. I mean, if you're optimistic, you have to know, right? So I think that makes me very, yeah, I think that, that <laughs> that's great. And let me just say one more thing about,
1: you know, in climate science, we have tipping points. Yeah. And, you know, in like the, for the melting of the, um, of the polar ice sheets, for example, that's a slow processes for a while, and then they reach a threshold, and then a rapid increase in rate of change. I believe that solutions to climate change also will have tipping points. What are the tipping points? Well, th- we don't know yet. Okay. I don't think we know yet, but there will be because think about adoption of cell phones, for example. Or think about as we're testing out many different solutions in many different aspects of climate change, both on the mitigation side, reduction of greenhouse mm-hmm. gases... And also on the resilience side
0: and adaptation. So you and think it will be a technology or it will be an event that makes people really rethink about climate change? Um, I think it will be, I, I think
1: we've, we're, perhaps this year we're seeing in, with, and this is, we're here, sit, we're here doing this in the United States. Mm-hmm. The hurricanes that we had um, a year ago, the... Um, the uh, wildfires, terrible fires and wildfires in California, the incidence of coastal flooding uh, that is occurring um, now just even with high tides in some areas on, for example, in the Norfolk region um, in in Virginia. So I believe that there is even this year, I think, we could even call 2018, in terms of awareness of climate change, uh, one tipping point. I think there have to be okay. many. Some, wow. of to okay. be te- some of them have to be some te- of them have to be technological. Some of them have to be social. Mm-hmm. But I really, I, I I think the one IPCC one point five degrees C report was extremely important. So I there there is so many things that I think are are beginning to come together. So although we have to say, of course, the challenges are enormous very real but i really believe that there there will be these tipping points that are going to lead us to the sustainable solutions for climate change
0: yeah but i'm so glad that you're so optimistic because especially after this 1.5 degree report that you just mentioned by the ipcc like a lot of us scientists we were like oh this is so bad like what do we do now we have the feeling it's not a question of if some of those like biophysical tipping points are reached, it's more a question of when. And it sounded really, really frightening. I know. And you know,
1: your reaction and your friends were also what I was hearing from my colleagues and friends as well. It was just that it was sobering, the 1.5 degrees C report. Mm-hmm. I think, and I know I have very, very good colleagues who, were, who worked on it, that wasn't their intent i think their intent was to say because when you look at the feasibility aspects they say it is feasible that we can but we have to it. ask we have and to act very fast very quickly, now, yeah. very quickly so we need those tipping points
0: come, coming right away <laughs> francisco <Right. laughs> we need them fast um yeah, let's hope we we see those tipping points, and then maybe in ten years we can look back and yes. then we know it's a tipping point. Okay, yes. so we have already an agreement <laughs> right. now. Cynthia, in ten years, we will have another podcast, and then we look back and That's hopefully you will hopefully you were right. Yes. And 2018 was the year when when everything changed. Yes. <laughs> okay, so at the end, I would like to come. back back to what you started talking about already, the Acme project. So in 2008 at a conference in Florida, you talked with a few of your colleagues, for example, Jim Jones, and you came up with this new idea, Agmiv. Can you quickly say what this means and what it's about?
1: Yes, sure. Thanks so much for asking about Agamib. Um because we all at Agmiv and Jim Jones, when we see each other, we always say this has succeeded beyond our wildest dreams. Um, at that conference, um, and it was during a coffee break. Um, but there, at that conference, there was a gr- there was a critical mass of crop modelers. It just really by chance that we were all there, and so we started meeting in the- co- in the coffee breaks and I got over they provided us a room, and we said we have to come together as agricultural modelers.' And improve the rigor of the science, because as you in the quote that you gave before, if you only use just one model, you do you know it's it's not as rigorous I think as it should be.
0: Yeah, and I think that comparisons of models have shown that the model mean is always better than any single model, right? Yes,
1: (laughs) it's which is one of the major findings that AgMIP has um, uh, really the a major result of of AgMIP showing that when you compare and we now compare twenty five. Thirty models, the mean of all of those mostly does absolutely better than any one particular model. There's some, you know, some cases in different, you know, in specific places, but um, but in general across across multiple geographies, that's the case. But what we're finding then too is that we can just by char- we can be characterizing the model uncertainty much more rigorously. We can see the model weaknesses. Why, you know, when there's, what are the outliers? Why are they the outliers? And maybe the outliers are right. You know, it's not that you don't just believe the mean exactly. You know, you have to then, and the, the, the wheat team is on their fourth phase already. The rice team, the maize team, the soybean team is just getting going. We're very, we're very excited about that. But we need more and different crops, by the way, not just the big four.
0: Okay, so that's then the plan for the future of Agamelo? Absolutely,
1: yes, and there was a wonderful poster today on native grains in Mexico, on the native maize. He said the growing season is nine months long. Wow. Isn't that yeah, amazing? And I know and that quinoa are a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and many quinoa. more than we know. Right. And they and he it was also working on quinoa. So we need all of these, certainly we because of the settings in because for the developing countries where the uh this is the the work has consistently shown, but I believe also with AgMEP we've been able to characterize the challenges in developing countries in a far greater way than uh, earlier work. So Ackman uh, works mostly with global models or you also have regional models? We do both and this Uh is what's also very exciting. Uh, um, we're, we're also thrilled about this because we have our global modelers. So we'd have global gridded crop models. Uh, that's a great, it's called GGCMI and that Global Gridded Crop Model Initiative. Um, Christoph Müller from, uh, yeah, uh, from PIC. Yeah. Yes. And Joshua Elliott, they were the founding um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, leaders of that. And then the global economics team—they—they had, they had just been; those models had just been getting together. But Agma really has helped them keep going. Um, uh, so we have those those global models in place, but. Ag- coming back to the very beginning, agriculture takes place on the ground. You have to, in particular places and geographies, and s- farming systems. So you so, work
0: directly together with farmers on the ground, or how does that usually? So work?
1: It, it's very hard for actual, like the modeling, to go down to the individual farmer. But some places do it. For example, CSIRO, and, uh, CSIRO in Australia do do that kind of thing. But what we do is we uh, we had a wonderful project funded by UK DFID and formed teams in developing countries who were, there was the climate specialists, crop specialists, livestock specialists, r- regional economic specialists, and IT specialists, and then stakeholder interaction specialists because all of this has to work And with they the told decisions. you what to put into your models. Exactly. So we started, we engaged the stakeholders, those to each teams, each team. And that, and they worked on... Uh, distributions of farms. So it was like a farming region. And then we realized, oh, look, we have the global scale and we have the regional scale. And really now we were ready. So for the 1.5 degree C report for the first time, we did coordinated global and regional assessments. And so we would For example, from the global economic models, take the prices for that particular region to feed it into the regional economic models Mm -hmm. related to that particular farming system. And then we did also comparisons. Well, what does that grid box show in terms of what's happening to the crops compared to what the regional crop modeling, for example, is showing? Mm-hmm. And so we're very excited about this. And we want to um, get started on our um, new work for AR6 of IPCC. Oh, okay, to, cool. With, uh, so if anybody wants to join and, and work on this, we're, we're, we're just gearing up to do this now. Maybe you
0: have to quickly say what AR6
1: means. Oh, Yes. Mm-hmm. So IPCC Sixth Assessment Report, it's uh, in process right now. So um, work is, scientists always work very hard to to do uh, a lot of uh, to get a lot of papers published that will be then assessed in those asses- in those assessments by the IPCC colleagues. So so we're we're uh, beginning to work on that, and certainly
0: we invite anyone who's interested to get in touch, and we'll all work together on it. Great. That sounds super, super exciting. And I'm very looking forward to to reading about the results of this. Um, So we're coming already towards the end of this interview. I have two last questions for you that I always ask. Imagine I have organized a session for you at the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos or any other really important meeting. And you can do with this session whatever you want. What would be the topic and who would you invite?
1: Oh, that is a hard one. But I definitely want to go to Davos. So let's make this happen. <laughs>
0: okay. Maybe you have to come up with a really good answer now, Cynthia, and then I yes. will just call you and okay. say, Cynthia, we have this session organized for you. Right.
1: All right. So um, I w- w- here's another very hot topic that Agmep is working on now, which is food shocks. Mm-hmm. And and many other groups are working on this too, and it fits right into the um, I think to to what they talk about Davos. What are the what are the real really important key risks, significant risks that are facing the world, and the large uh, societal uh, groups that that are represented there? And so what we're working on right now is applying that kind of agape rigor across the three we talked about across the components of the food system production and as production supply chains and demand Mm -hmm. but under shock and to bring forward that's the session that we would who would who would participate in your panel so what we need very much is um representatives from uh first of all the agribusinesses because they are they're looking at this of course but you know the way that the world food system is organized is it's a huge hugely embedded aspect in our society and if we need to be changing these aspects of this towards sustainability towards resilience of climate change and towards mitigation of climate change both on the supply side and the demand side in terms of potential change in diets those that we need to partner with those very powerful aspects, uh, groups in society. Mm-hmm. So that's the first. But it has to be governments as well, because in the end of the day, governments are, the ins- are basically the backstop of last resort for when there are food shocks. And if there is not insurance in place, if there is, there's the potential for civil unrest, as we saw in 2008 with the food shocks, that we need to have the governments on board as well. They're key players. And the, uh, the third group I would definitely bring forward is, I'm very interested in having the role of science be strengthened in society. And I think that the climate change challenges are bringing sci- scientists and science into the fore of society, even though there's a lot of talk about, oh, science is devalued now. But really and truly, in order to solve these problems, we have to have a closer relationship of the science with the major stakeholders. Yeah, so the maybe third... we need to
0: explain them better, what exactly we're doing, so they can... Exactly. And that's know. why it's great
1: to have this podcast <laughs> that <Yeah>. you're doing, <laughs> and your podcast that you're doing, because we need things like this, and we need help. <laughs> The
0: scientists need help, so thank you very much for doing your podcast. And the very, very last question is, by the end of your career, what do you wish you will have impacted and want to be remembered for as an actor in the global food system?
1: Oh, wow. uh, Well, I feel, you know, I just right now even, I'm just very, I just am very gratified that that we were able to find, found, agmip in that coffee break long ago and that there are there are uh, you know about a thousand i got new members new members were coming in just in the last few days at agu you know a thousand researchers around the world it's just wonderful to be part of that so that's what i would say
0: wow thank you so much for coming to my podcast cynthia and i hope you have a you enjoy the rest of AGU and yeah we'll talk in 10 years we said again <laughs> all right thank you Francisca. wonderful and
1: thank you for doing this podcast